All right, before we jump in, um, we told you a couple times we're going after a topic um, that is not necessarily kid-friendly, and uh, we don't shy away from those conversations. Um, but if this is one of the first times that you've joined us, and um, just, just let you know that the whole online church thing makes this a little bit more complicated than it normally is whenever we're on site together. So I just, I just want to start by asking you to turn to somebody in the room there with you, look them in the eye, take a deep breath, and just let them know everything's going to be okay. Go ahead, tell them. Everything's going to be okay. All right? Everything's going to be okay. I promise. Um, we've been looking at the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, some of the most uh, beautiful, rich, quoted words in all of human history. Uh, but they're also some of the most difficult and unsettling and, and bothersome words in human history as well. If, and if we're being completely honest, especially those of us who've kind of grown up in the church and, and heard these words before, the contrast between Jesus's vision for his kingdom and our lives don't always line up real well. There, there's a little bit of dissonance between those two things. In fact, um, there's a Jewish Orthodox theologian who's fascinated with the life of Jesus. He writes just some really, really interesting things about the historical Jesus. But one of the things that he wrote was a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And here's, here's what he says, his perspective on what Christians have done with Jesus' words. He says, The history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising and render it harmless. So from his vantage point, there's too many people that have tried to tame Jesus' words to try and domesticate, to, to keep them safe. But I'm just telling you, you cannot domesticate his kingdom. You, you can't tame Jesus's words, especially the words that we're going to look at today. And, and so far, we've seen Jesus make this connection between the internal you and the external you. A couple weeks ago, um, we looked at his words about murder. Um, the external behavior that he says is clearly wrong, but then he connected it to anger, that internal feeling that he said was just as wrong. Last week, we looked at uh, Jesus' teaching on prayer, and there were people that were, were, were only interested in the external rewards of prayer, and Jesus comes along, and he teaches us that the external needs to match up with the internal when we pray that this upside-down kingdom life that Jesus came to establish encompasses all of us, the external part and the internal part, which is really important. I think it's really important for us to understand this because sometimes we like to confine Christianity to, um, to, to, to performance, to ritual, 
to, to managing our behavior. And then on the other side of that coin is, is people who will talk about just inviting or just, just having Jesus um, come into your heart. And it's this internal thing. And it's, if, as long as you believe the right things, as long as you mentally think about the right things, it doesn't really matter how you live. But as you get to know Jesus, as you listen to what he has to say, he never separates the internal part from the external part of you. He came to redeem all of you. He came to redeem all of us. And I hope you've seen that. I hope you've recognized that throughout this series. But I'll say it this way. The kingdom life is about Jesus leading our external and internal lives. It's all connected. Now, why do I say that? Especially, especially today. Well, as, as we've weighed into a topic that's a little uncomfortable for some of us and, and for multiple reasons, I just thought it would be a good idea to be reminded that we are more than our external selves. When it comes to our, our sexuality, too often, we buy into this idea that the external is, is all there is, that sex is purely physical. But Jesus is getting ready to teach us that our sexuality is multifaceted. It's, it's more than just what happens on the outside, and we would be wise to pay attention to what he has to say about this. So we're going to listen to Jesus. We're going to listen to our Savior, our King, our Teacher. Let's sit on the hillside again, listening to what Jesus has to say. This is Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. One of the great pick-me-upper passages of the New Testament, <laughs> right? Now, first thing we need to admit is how countercultural this is. I, I don't think I need to convince anybody of this, but the biblical view on sexual ethics is countercultural. It's upside down when it comes to our culture. And, and as we go through this, some of you might need to hold on to your eyeballs as we look at this because they might roll so hard they'll fall out. This, it's, it's so countercultural. We just need to admit that. But we also need to admit that the people of God have always been called to be countercultural. This isn't just in our day and age. In, in ancient Israel, um, when the rest of the nations were abusing children in the name of worship, when they were trafficking young women into cultic temple prostitution, the people of Israel said, everybody else is doing it, can't we? And God said, no, because I'm calling you to something different. I'm calling you to something better. Um, in the first century, when uh, everybody in the Roman Empire was bending their knee and proclaiming Caesar is Lord, everybody's doing it, just go along, it'll be easier for you to fit in. It was Jesus' followers who came along and said, no, Jesus is Lord. 
Caesar is not Lord. And then in the 1800s, abolitionists like William Wilberforce were, were willing to say, I don't care that there's an entire industry built around this. I, I don't care if it disrupts the economy. Slavery is wrong. I follow Jesus, and we need to go a different way because he leads us in a better way. Throughout history, the people of Jesus have always said, we will not go the way of culture. We're called to something better. So we just need to admit that. It's countercultural, and this is what we've been called to as Jesus followers. So, so let's look again at what Jesus has to say. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, in, in the ancient world, um, there were men winking at each other when it came to this kind of behavior, but then they would turn around and absolutely destroy women for the same behavior. Aren't you so glad that that double standard no longer exists? Isn't it interesting how some things never die? Now, ladies, this, this, you are not exempt from this. But Jesus is very clearly saying to men, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, there is a higher standard than simply not sleeping around. He goes right to the heart. He goes right to those internal places and talks about the condition of their heart. And, and a couple things I just want to clarify. Um, you can actually see people all throughout the ages trying to figure out what, what looking lustfully actually means. I've seen debates in writing on this. How long is too long? Is it one second? Is it four seconds? I mean, at 3.8 seconds, you're still good. And, and I don't think it's helpful at all to go in that legalistic direction, but I, I want to try and help with this. So here, here's what I think. Any kind of look that's connected to sexually charged thoughts that are out of bounds is looking lustfully. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not just about what's going on externally. It's also about what's going on right here. It's about what's going on internally. And then secondly, um, this is the same idea as it was with, with murder and anger. He's not saying that lustful thoughts and adultery are equal. He's ratcheting up the tension on the hillside that day, and he's teaching that they're equally destructive. They're equally destructive, that the stakes for both of these are really, really high. So come on. If you're in a marriage right now, where the passion is gone and, and you've, you've reconnected or you're entertaining thoughts of someone else, a person that you used to date, um, your first love, maybe you bumped into them on a, at a reunion, you reconnected on social media, maybe you're flirting with a coworker, maybe you're hitting websites that are taking you into darker and darker places and you're telling yourself that you haven't done anything yet. According to Jesus, you have. 
And, and, and maybe you haven't done any of that, but there's that one person who's too prominent in your thoughts, and it's not just messing with your head, it's starting to mess with your heart. You're flirting with that thought instead of fleeing from that thought. That's what Jesus is talking about. And, and, and some of you are thinking, that's why I don't listen to preachers when it comes to sexual ethics, because you just indicted everybody, pastor, uptight, McJudgy pants. And, and, and listen, I get it. I, I, I do. Simply telling someone that they're wrong, even if it is biblical, isn't necessarily helpful. And it would be really easy. It would be very easy because none of you are in the room here with me. <laughs> it would be really easy for me to get out a sledgehammer and just start beating people over the head with truth. And so what I want to do for the rest of the time, I want to show you the reason that Jesus gives us these parameters in a way that's not just truthful, but in a way that's also helpful. Because I promise you, Jesus has invited us into a life that includes our internal and external wholeness. He's, he's, he's invited us. He wants something for us that's better than some of the things that we're being sold. So, how about a little anatomy? Okay, not that kind, I promise. It's not that kind. There, there is a hormone that works as a neurotransmitter. It's called oxytocin. It's essential in healthy sexual contact, but it's really a bonding chemical. It's primarily found in women, and particularly in women um, who've just had babies. Uh, when a newborn baby and a mama touch skin to skin, there's this profound bonding that takes place inside of her and inside of the baby. It causes them to go, I need you. This is, this is my girl, this is my boy, and this is my mom. It's, it's, it's an amazing chemical thing. Well, the same thing happens in sexual contact. Oxytocin is released to the point where, where she starts to feel he's mine. Not in a weird, possessive way, but in a, I need more of him. I, 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 I belong to him. But oxytocin is also released every time there's sexual contact, not just between a husband and a wife. So even if it's a hookup, even if it's a one-night thing, even if you're both adults and you said you don't need to call each other in the morning, her brain is still telling her, I need to be with him. I belong to him. And what about men? Well, in men, there's, there's something called vasopressin that does something similar. So, so sexual contact happens, it's released into the brain, and he begins to, to form this bond. She is mine, not in a weird caveman, grab her by the hair kind of way. It's, I need her. I want to be with her. She belongs to me, I belong to him. And, and social scientists are finding in very large studies when that connection, when that relationship isn't there after sexual contact, it starts to affect a long-term ability for someone to be intimate, for someone to have that kind of relational connection. What am I saying? I'm saying that the neurochemistry supports God's plan. 
he had this figured out way before any of the rest of us discovered it. That when a husband and a wife embrace each other, this is, this is the, the glue that holds them together at a chemical level. That God designed us to experience this amazing bonding. But when we go outside of how he designed it, it just creates brokenness. It creates an ache. It, it, it leaves emotional and sexual, I'd go so far as to say spiritual scars. There's a, a Washington Post journalist by the name of Laura Sessions Stepp who wrote a book called Unhooked, How Young Women Pursue Sex, Delay Love, and Lose It Both. And she's not a Jesus follower. Um, she just did a whole bunch of, a bunch of research for her book with a whole bunch of young women. And here's a quote from her book that sums up her research. She says, a girl can tuck a Trojan in her purse on Saturday night but there is no such device to protect her heart. And, and I don't think this is a gender thing. I think this is a human thing. That we are created for so much more than our culture is selling us. This gift is so powerful. It's so vulnerable. It's so good that God says, protect it. Protect it. And I am not saying Please don't hear this. I am not saying that an initial sexual encounter isn't pleasurable. Some parents will lie to their kids. If you ever step outside of God's rules, first of all, you won't enjoy it. And second of all, you'll probably be struck by lightning. No, we, we can't say that. But what we can say is that the science along the scripture says the same thing. You can't separate your external you from your internal you. You can't separate those two things. And if you try, especially when it comes to your sexuality, you pay a long-term cost when it comes to, to, to the ideas and, and the places in relationships where there's intimacy. It just wreaks havoc with the human heart. And listen, sex is not a bad thing. Anybody remember the Song of Solomon series from a few years ago? Anybody remember Awake North Wind? Anybody remember the raisin cakes? Don't even get me started on the gazelles. Scripture is so pro-sexual enjoyment. But God says, I thought this thing up. <laughs> I created this thing, and it is profoundly powerful. And the best the safest way to enjoy it, hold on to your eyeballs, is within the confines of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. And anytime, anytime we step outside of God's best, we start carving up the human heart. It's just how we were designed. And the scriptures and the science backs it up which is why Jesus says it's so important that we pay attention to what's going on inside of us. The internal you and the external you are connected. They can't be separated. And so I want to I want to talk a little bit about something that's prevalent in our day and age, but before we do, I want everybody to take a deep breath and I want you to answer this question. Why 
is slavery so wrong? Why is slavery so wrong? Now, I'm assuming we all believe it's wrong, but why? Why is that? There's numerous, numerous reasons. Um, but number one, it, it takes away someone's freedom. Um, it's one human being owning another human being. Uh, it's, it's playing God with other people. There are all kinds of reasons. But the reason I, I kind of want us to focus on is this idea of treating people like a commodity. We're buying and selling human beings. Someone made in the image of God. He loves them. He has a plan for them. And they're being treated like property. It's, it's a heinous act of sin. I think we can all agree with that. But I want to take it just one step further. When you ignore the value, when you ignore the image bearer in another person, when you rob them of their dignity, when you rob them of their freedom, aren't you also dishonoring the God whose image they're made in? Doesn't that reflect what you believe about the one in whose image they're made? Aren't we saying, God, I don't care if you made them in your image, I'm going to go my own way. So, so here it is. Here it is. When someone participates in and consumes pornography, how is that any different than slavery? When, 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 when you film or photograph someone doing the most intimate things and, and sell it or leverage it, um, you, you, it's now a commodity and particularly, women are treated like objects. We're ignoring the image of God in them. We're viewing them as somebody who exists for our pleasure. And pornography is based on the lie that you can somehow separate your body from your soul. You can somehow separate the external from the internal. So when someone watches movies on a business trip because nobody's around... When, when, when somebody's hitting websites that takes them into darker and dark, it's just a drain that sucks people into darker and darker places. When men stare at young women who are young enough to be their daughter and throw dollar bills at them like they're some kind of trained animal, it's furthering the lie that we can somehow separate the external from the internal. She is someone's daughter. <laughs> she, she is someone's sister. He is someone's son. Yes. The growing demographic in pornography, as far as consumption goes, has been for several years, is women. They're following the lead of men, chasing them, trying to keep up with their appetites. And I could show you statistics. I, 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 could, I could show you stats from the past couple months of how traffic to porn sites have gone through the roof because people are home more. But here's, here's, here's really what I, what I want to do. I want to show you what to do if you find yourself trying to separate the external you from the internal you. What do you do if you're stuck? What if you do if you're trapped? What if you do if you're addicted? 
What do you do, what do, you do if you're struggling with this, this lust thing that Jesus talks about? What in the world do you do? Well, there's a couple groups I want to talk to. There's one group that hears this and, and says, that's exactly what I would expect from a preacher. So old-fashioned. I hear you. But here's what I would say to you. Just one word. Remember. Remember, just remember this, because one day you're going to wake up either at the bottom or the top of the heap. You'll wake up at the bottom where life is a mess. You'll wonder why things haven't worked out for you, why you feel so empty, why your life has turned out how it has, and hopefully, maybe you'll remember something that we've talked about today. Or maybe you'll wake up at the top of the heap. You'll have more money, you'll have more stuff, you'll have more sex, you'll have more of everything a person could want, but inside you'll feel empty. You won't be able to connect. You can't quite squeeze out of people the intimacy you long for. And maybe, just maybe, you'll remember something we talked about today. Maybe you'll remember Jesus who loves you. But he said 2,000 years ago, time out. This is more than physical. This is going to affect you in the innermost parts of your being. This is about the internal and external self being whole. So some of you, some of you need to remember for others, maybe, maybe you're thinking, I don't need you to convince me, Tim. I know that this has created issues inside of me, but what do I do? I, I, your word starts with R2. It's a big Bible word. Repent. It's repent. Repent means run away, flee, turn around and go the opposite direction. You need to repent of your sexual sin. And again, I don't think you need me to inform you of that but maybe you just need a nudge. Maybe you just need a nudge to turn around and go the other direction. See, because at the beginning of this, you were tempted to turn this off and move about your day, and you didn't. You stayed. You hung with it. And for you, the word is repent. Repent means you make some big lifestyle changes. Maybe it means you get rid of internet at home. Maybe it means you quit going to certain places. Maybe it means you erase certain phone numbers or or find a different group of friends. Maybe you need to find an, an addiction recovery group or seek professional counseling. If we can help you with that, we would love to help you with that. Most people need outside help for themselves to get going the other direction. That's why Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Did he mean that literally? No, he didn't. He meant you need to take this seriously. Repent means you make drastic changes now instead of facing drastic consequences later. And why do they need to be drastic? Because trying to separate the external you from the internal you is dangerous. It's dangerous. It carves up your heart. It messes with your soul in a way that you don't know. 
until later down the line. If you're single, I say this almost every single time I preach about this. Repentance means, maybe, for you, pulling out your calendar and putting a big X one year from today and deciding, I will not date for a year. I'm going to allow God to renew my mind for 365 days because dating for you means sex. Take a year. Take a year off and allow God to renew your mind. Have you ever seen the effects of a forest fire? Like fire is good. Fire is good. It, it, it cooks our food. It keeps us warm when it's cold, but it's only good inside the fire pit where it can't kill, where it can't destroy. Untamed fire can kill your body. Sexual untamed sin can kill your future, your marriage, your parenting, your soul. It kills way more than your body. And, and those of you who are single, will you look silly? Maybe. Maybe. Will, will, will you look foolish to some people around you? Maybe. But guess what? When you have a permanent, fulfilling, God-infused marriage, those same people who thought you were foolish will wonder what your secret is. And, and, and you'll be able to say, I decided to do some extreme stuff back then so I can reap the benefits of some extreme stuff today. Are you willing to repent? Are, are you willing to make some drastic changes? Because if you are, in time, because this is how God works, he'll begin to heal the soul. He'll begin to heal the inside of you. He'll begin to align the internal part of you with the external part of you. But it begins with repentance, turning around, making some drastic changes, committing to live by Jesus' standard instead of your own. See, the, the, the beauty of this is that this is not a message of condemnation. It's a message that God loves you so much that he's spoken into this area 2,000 years ago. And he's, he's willing to redeem your past. He's willing to redeem your sin. But he's waiting for you to run in his direction. He's waiting for you to make some difficult decisions and then to trust him, 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 trust him every single day in every single area, especially in this area, with your internal and your external life. Don't buy the lie that sex is just physical. There are so many levels how God has created you in your internal and external life. Some of you need to remember. Some of you, you need to repent. And again, if there are things that we can help you with as a church, there are things that you need to talk to a pastor about, there are things you need to pray with us, 
about, please, 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 please let us help you with this. Please let us help and walk with you through this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please give us the wisdom to know what to do with with what you've just said to us? And God, as I've prayed many, many times in the past, I, I just pray for this generation of Jesus followers, this generation of teenagers and college students and single adults and married adults, would, would you please raise up a generation of people that trust you with this area of their life in spite of what our culture says? And God, that that would bring hope and life and a freshness to our country, maybe, maybe even our world. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. That's in Jesus' name I pray all these things.